My name is Philip Pattison. By the way, I see a couple new faces. My name is Philip Pattison. I'm one of the pastors here at Twin Oaks, and it's my privilege today to be able to share for just a few minutes in our next installment uh, in our vision series. Uh, this is week two of our vision series. Um, last week, we began by uh, unpacking uh, our mission statement. This is our mission statement right here. Twin Oaks exists to inspire people to follow Jesus through loving relationships. Um, and for those of you who weren't here last week, what I'd encourage you to do uh, is to go onto our website this, sometime this next week. It's just TwinOaksChurch.com. And if you click on media, uh, it will, uh, you'll be able to get to our podcast. And, and right there on the podcast, you can listen to the full message. And what we did was we um, unpacked this statement uh, basically word by word, phrase by phrase. And we, we laid out the biblical foundation for the mission of this church. And so I'd encourage you to go on and listen to that. Um, one, one thing I do want to point out from last week, though, was uh, we encouraged everyone, after we had talked about our mission as a church, we encouraged everybody uh, to go home and to pray, to talk with your family, to, to, to think about it. And, and, if, and, and if you are ready to say, as the Lord leads, as the Lord leads you to say, yes, I'm in. I'm in. I, I want to be an active member of a community that exists to inspire people to follow Jesus through loving relationships as a symbol of that commitment to, to, the, to do this mission to just simply come up here and with the little Sharpies we've got there, just to sign your name on that. Sign your name to that statement. Uh, and so I just would, I would encourage you, uh, again, this week, the offer stands. It's going to be up here all throughout our series. If the Lord leads you to say, yes, I'm in, come on up and make that symbolic gesture uh, that you are committed to that. So we exist to inspire people to follow Jesus through loving relationships. And the way that we believe that that can happen is by every person experiencing what we call the four L's. Liberate, love, link, and launch. And by the way, George uh, mentioned it. You can read more about all of the, you know, the four L's plus just our overall mission, vision, and goals in this booklet. And I actually want to make sure that this gets in the hand of every person here. So we're going to do another hand raising here. Can I ask somebody from the FIT team to, go, to grab some of those booklets? If you don't have one of these booklets, you must have one before you leave, okay? Could, could you actually just raise your hand? If maybe you were out of town last week or you, for whatever reason you weren't able to get your hands on one, could you raise your hand uh, and our, our FIT team is going to uh, get some of these to you, okay? Raise, raise your hand right now and they'll, they'll put one in your hands. Um, but I think this booklet helps to uh, lay out our four L's well, as well as the rest of our mission and goals. Um, liberate, love, link, and launch. We are liberated through the gospel of Jesus Christ and as a result of the gospel, we are compelled to love God, link together in community, and we are launched into the world with the love and message of Jesus Christ. Liberate, love, link, and launch. And what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we're going to take each one of these L's and we're going to unpack them one L per week. Okay? And that starts today. So today we begin with liberate. We are liberated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This, this is the foundation of who we are as a people, as a church. Um, we, we like to say here that the gospel is not just the starting line, it's the fuel that makes us go. Um, today it is my, my, my hope and prayer, I'm praying all week for this, that, that I might be able to present clearly what the gospel is and how it liberates us and spurs us on as a people. And I just want to let you know that at the end of our time together, at the end of, our, uh, at the end of this message, what, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a chance to respond. Um, the gospel, what we're going to find is, is not just good advice. It's not just a set of teaching. It's good news, but it is good news that we must respond to. Um, if there's anyone here today 
that would be honest and say, you know, I, I don't think I've ever been liberated by a gospel of any sort. Um, I've been praying for you this week, and my hope is to, that, that today you won't walk out of this room until that happens, that you will be liberated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who, who are uh, walking with Jesus, we've been set free, we've been liberated by the gospel, that today as we, as we are reminded of these truths, that we would be uh, just experience these new deep levels, sweet levels of faith, hope, and joy as we, we bathe again in the refreshing waters of the gospel. Can we do that? All right, so we're going we're gonna to answer three questions today in our time. Number one, what place does the gospel have in our church? What place does the gospel have in our church? And then second, what are the principles of the gospel? And then third, what is the power of the gospel for today? All right, those three questions. So first, let's, what place does the gospel have at Twin Oaks Church? Well, as I've said several times, it's, it's, it's the foundation, but it's also the driving force behind what we do. It's the starting line, and it's the fuel that makes us go. And to show you why this is the case, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 together. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Um, so if, you, if you're familiar at all with 1 Corinthians, uh, here's a little bit about the book. For the 14 chapters before this, Paul has given uh, instructions and exhortation to the church in Corinth about all kinds of everything from, you know, the practices of the church, the ministries of the church, you know, how to, you know, have relationships within the church, how to, you know, marriage relationships. He talks about uh, a whole lot about spiritual gifts. And then in chapter 15, look what he comes back to. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. We, we have a tendency to think that the gospel is just something that we share with people outside of the church, right? This is just something for the lost. Um, but we have to recognize the importance of the gospel within the life of the church. Um, Paul, is, Paul is communicating this to the church in Corinth. He says, this is what you heard, this is what you responded to, you are being saved. He's talking to believers here and he says, chapter 15, and I need to remind you, I must remind you, we must be reminded. And then he says, the gospel is of first importance. Did you catch that in there? He said the the gospel is of first importance. Earlier in that that same letter and back in chapter 2, Paul says, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Friends, the, the gospel is not something that we graduate from. We don't just say, okay, cool, Jesus, thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Thanks for the cross. Now let's get to the deep stuff. Let's get to the meat of Christianity. No, the love of Christ is what saves us, but Paul also says it's the love of Christ that compels us. The gospel defines us and it drives us. I've heard it said that our, our level of worship will never outmatch our level of gratitude. Our level of worship will never outmatch our level of gratitude. That's why we're going to constantly, every week, in every single way, talk about and celebrate and revel in the, the love of God through Jesus Christ. And just so you don't think it's, um, you know, Paul saying this to the Corinthian church was maybe just like one isolated example. You know, they just really needed to be reminded. Basically, I can say this with some confidence here, all all of the epistles in the New Testament, every one of them were written to Christians. And every single one of them had a heavy emphasis on the gospel and its implications for the individual and the corporate church. 
And I think what this means is that for, for churches, like us, churches like Twin Oaks who believe the gospel, that the Spirit of God is going to constantly bring us back to the gospel. God willing, every ministry and every message that you ever hear from this platform is going to have Jesus Christ at its center. That's, that's, our, that's our hope and our prayer. After all, let's, let's consider the alternative. What's the alternative to that? Matt Chandler in his book, uh, The Explicit Gospel, says this. He says, what are the alternatives to the cross? Be a good man, be a good woman, be a good Boy Scout or Girl Scout for Jesus? Because that's what it boils down to for many in the church. We replace the, cent- the centrality of the cross with something more appealing. But the reason we do this is not so much to rectify an imbalance, but to idolatrously elevate ourselves. It's like the many charismatics who want to make the day of Pentecost central to the Christian faith, or the many Calvinists who want to make tulip central to the faith, or the many liberals who want to make social justice central to the faith, or the many fundamentalists who want to make moral behavior the center of the faith. All of these are good things, biblical things, but to make any of them the center of the Christian faith, the grounds of our hope, is to disregard the only power of salvation, the message of the cross. We end up like Indiana Jones trying to replace the treasure with a bag of sand. We think it'll work, but the whole structure comes crashing down around us. The gospel of Jesus Christ will always be of first importance at Twin Oaks Church. Amen? That's, that's the place of the gospel. Okay? And now, what are the principles of the gospel? Because um, some of you may be here, you might be kind of new to uh, all of this Christianity stuff, and you're thinking, man, he's talking a whole lot about a certain kind of music. Um, I'm not just talking about uh, black gospel music, okay? Um, the gospel literally means good news. Good news. Now, I said it before. It's not just good advice. Uh, the gospel is not primarily a set of teaching. It, it's not primarily a way of life. The gospel is not something that we do. It's something that has been done for us. And it's something that we must respond to. But what is it? I like this definition. In its simplest form, the gospel is God's reconciling work in Christ. That through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God is making all things new. Both personally for those who repent and believe, and cosmically as he redeems culture and creation from its subjection to futility. Okay? Let's simplify it even more than that. The gospel is God's reconciling work in Jesus Christ. The gospel is God's reconciling work in Jesus Christ. Well, and that begs the question, why do we need to be reconciled? What's the point of reconciliation? Well, the answer is, we've been separated from God. There's been a division between us and God. Isaiah tells us that our sins have separated us from a holy God. And we now face a chasm that is far too wide for us to cross. We've dug ourselves a grave that is far too deep for us to climb out of. One of the clearest descriptions of this comes out of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, 
God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So did you catch that? They, they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. You see, we, we, are, we are worshippers by nature. That's how we were created. The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism sums it up really well. The, the chief end of man, they say, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's our, that's our primary purpose, our chief end. Okay? We, we were meant to worship God and to enjoy a relationship with him. And it's not that when we sin, we stop worshiping. We just got to start worshiping again. It's that we've reoriented our worship to something else or to someone else. We have turned our worship from the one that is holy and the one that is worthy into, we've turned it to something that is completely unholy and unworthy. Again, Chandler writes, he says, we have a war going on and a good portion of our world is in an unbelievable mess of poverty and famine and civic unrest and violence. And yet... If you turn on the news in the U.S., you are just as likely to hear about the daily activities of pop stars and actors or how much money an athlete is making and who he's dating rather than anything meaningful. Surely anyone can see that our worship switch is always set to on, and we've tuned in to some ridiculously finite broadcasts. Grown men paint their bodies and surf an incalculable number of websites to follow a sports team. Significant emotional energy poured into the physical abilities of young men in a game. Go to any concert and you'll see people lifting their hands spontaneously and clapping and closing their eyes and being spiritually moved by music. We put posters on our walls and stickers on our cars, ink under our skin and drugs in our system. We do all of these things, pouring ourselves into what is decaying. We want to worship something. Worship is an innate response. We are wired for it by God himself. But something has gone wrong with the wiring. And what happens when instead of using the gift of worship for God... We terminate our worship on the stuff God made. What happens when we attempt to hijack God's story about himself and rewrite it with ourselves at the center? It's insurrection. It's mutiny. It's treason. What happens when we argue with God about how God should govern, even daring to threaten him that if he does not govern the way we want him to, we're not going to believe him and believe in him and won't follow him? We have an infinitely valuable, infinitely deep, infinitely rich, infinitely wise, infinitely loving God. And instead of pursuing him with a steadfast passion, instead of loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, instead of attributing to him glory and honor and praise and power and wisdom and strength, we just try to take his toys and run. We who have been placed as stewards over God's creation, we go rogue and worship not the creator, but the creation. What is God's response to this? How does God respond to traitors like us? What happens when the mouse tries to steal the lion's dinner? Paul tells us in Romans 11, Paul says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. We love to note the kindness of God. We'll do that all day long. That's great, right? Well, we, we love to note the kindness of God. But Paul says, we have to also have to note the severity of God. We have to think about it. We have to reflect on it. It's not fun to talk about it. I love to just be talking about the kindness of God, but, but Paul says it's a command. We have to note the severity of God. Well, what is the severity of God? Well, we read it in Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The wrath of God. Those who stand opposed to God stand under judgment. There are consequences for our choices. Romans 6, the wages of our sin is death. There is punishment for our sin. We often 
come to God as if he's just something to be, to be used. We come to him like he's our little kitten. We'll come and we'll play with him and we'll cuddle with him. He's to be used for our enjoyment. But that's not how the Bible portrays God. He's a lion. He's not a kitten. He's a lion. And I think C.S. Lewis was right when he said he's not a tame lion. He, yes, he is good. Yes, he is the king. But he is not safe. He is a lion and he's not a tame lion. The irony is that when we slap a lion in the face, we get surprised that there are consequences. Here's, here's one of the reasons why I think it's so difficult for us to, to note the severity of God. Because I don't think we see ourselves as slapping the lion in the face. I think basically we all see ourselves as good people. I, I'm, I'm a good person. Yeah, I make mistakes, but basically I am a good person. The problem with this, of course, is the Bible. I just read some in Romans 1, Romans 3, Ecclesiastes 3, Psalm 14, Psalm 53. They all basically say the same thing. There is none righteous. No one does good, not even one. There are none who seek God. All have become corrupt. This is what the Bible says. And you say, well, that's just, you know, I'll just dismiss the Bible then. That's just, that's just the Christian teaching. Okay, well, let's go to Plato. In the Republic, this is what he observed. In all of us, he says, in all of us, even in, quote, unquote, good men, There is a lawless, wild beast nature. There is no conceivable folly or crime which a man may not be ready to commit. This is what he observed. He said, in the best of of men, you know, behavior-wise, morally-wise, in the best of men, they are fully capable and just a couple steps away from from, from the worst of atrocities. That's the nature that we have in our heart. That's really who we are. This is what Plato observed. You know, I've been asked before, you know, why the cross? Uh, especially in conversations with people who are outside of the faith. I've been asked, why the cross? If God is really God, then why doesn't he just snap his fingers? Why doesn't he just whisk away evil, you know, once and for all? Why, did, why was the cross necessary? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Maybe you've been asked that same question. Can I tell you what I think the answer is to that? Because if God were just to have snapped his fingers and whisked away evil, we'd be gone. We'd be whisked away. And he desires a relationship with it. He desires to be reconciled to us. If he whisks away evil, we'd be whisked away. We, we like to think you know, that the evil is just out there. And that we're just these helpless victims who are just being abused by society. We're conditioned by our society. But according to the scriptures, the evil is right here. It's out there as well, but the, also the evil is right here. Years ago, the Times did an article and it's entitled, What's Wrong with the World Today? Okay, What's Wrong with the World Today? And what they, they took an interesting approach to the article because they reached out to a lot of influential authors of the day, and they, uh, and they said, would you write in your responses, your thoughts on this question, what's wrong with the world today? And one of the authors that they reached out to was a guy named G.K. Chesterton. And so can I, can I read to you uh, G.K. Chesterton's response to the, to the question, what's wrong with the world today? This is what he wrote. Dear Sir, I am, yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> Dear Sir, I am, yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. That, that's taken me years to finally accept, and some very hard roads to finally accept. There was a point in my life when my deepest and darkest secrets, the, my deepest and darkest sins were exposed for the world to see. All these things that I had been hiding in my heart and and, and, and all these things that, that I didn't want anybody else to know about, these things that were robbing me of peace and, and hope and joy and intimacy with God. Uh, and, and God 
lovingly exposed them, that he was able to do the surgery that was necessary in the, and begin the healing process that was necessary. Um, when that happened, I heard a lot of people around me say, man, Philip is really messed up. Okay? Philip's a really bad person. I mean, I, I heard that. Okay? I'm not going to comment on whether or not that was appropriate for them to say or not. Okay, that's another message. All I want to mention to you is uh, what I felt when they said that. They said, man, Philip's a really bad guy. Um, I remember thinking, how unfair. I'm not a bad guy. I, I'm, I, I'm a good guy. I just made a lot of dumb mistakes. I just did some dumb stuff, but I'm not a bad guy. I'm a good person. Um, basically, in my head, I was saying, I'm, I'm not a sinner. I just sin sometimes. It took me a lot of uh, loving biblical counsel and quite a bit of time to realize I don't just sin, I'm a sinner. I wasn't just sinning, I, I am a sinner. It wasn't, it wasn't my habits that made me who I was, it was who I was that was, make, that was creating my habits. Does that make sense? It, it's, it's the tree, you, you, know, you know the tree by the fruit that it bears. And I, I wanted to be different. And, it, you know, if, if it wasn't enough just for me to change some of my habits, I needed a new heart. If you have, if, if you have an apple orchard and you want to start growing lemons, if you want to change the fruit of a tree, what do you do? Do you start, you know, remove all the apples and then duct tape a bunch of lemons to the tree? There you go. There's your lemon tree. No. Because next season, what are you going to get? Apples, right? If you want to start growing lemons, you have to uproot the apple trees, and you have to plant new seeds. I didn't just need some behavior modification. I needed a new heart. I needed a new identity. You know, through, through some sheer willpower, I might have been able to change a couple of my habits, change a couple of the, my behaviors, but there's no way I could give myself a new heart. That, that's a supernatural work. And Jesus said that's the only way for salvation. That's what he told Nicodemus. You've got to be born again. So we must recognize, we must recognize who we are. We don't just sin, we're sinners. And we have to recognize our utter inability to save ourselves. There's no pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Apart from Christ, the reality is that we stand helpless and condemned, condemned to be separated from God now and on into eternity. And by the way, I know that I'm spending a lot of time on the fallenness of humanity. I know that we're, we're, this is kind of a depressing message. But here's the reason why I think it's important. is because this concept is so countercultural. Today, we live in a culture that has been uh, built up and developed by Stuart Smalley. Anybody remember Stuart Smalley? Am I the only one who grew up watching SNL? Anybody remember the, the, the one or two of you? Anybody remember the, the mantra of Stuart Smalley? That's right. You're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. That's the mantra. You're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. I was reminded this week of, of uh, there were two men that came in to pray. And uh, one of the men was a tax collector, falls down, uh, and he starts beating his chest. And he cries, he's weeping, he just cries out to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then there's another man who comes in who's a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders. And he basically starts praying to God, thank you, God, for making me such a good person. Thank you that I'm not like that guy. Look at all of the great things that I've done. Look at who I am. Thank you, God, for making me so awesome, basically. 
Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, one of these men went home justified before God. You can guess who it was. John Stott said, no one can say hallelujah without first saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. No one can say hallelujah without first saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm hope my, the reason why I'm, I'm going through all of this is I'm hoping that if you have yet to say that, that today you will say that. You will recognize that we are all sinners and will say, have mercy on me, a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and our sins separate us from a holy God. The chasm is far too wide for us to cross. We need radical intervention. It's the only way. Here's the good news. 2,000 years ago, a baby was born. His name was Jesus. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And now we get the blessings that only he deserves. It's a gift. Paul told us to note the severity of God, but he also told us to note the kindness of God. The place that the gospel holds out to you and to me where God's kindness and severity meet is the cross at Calvary. It's at the cross where God's grace and his justice come together, where they intersect. The wages of our sin is death. Jesus took that death upon himself. The wrath of God is being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness, but Jesus came and on that cross he bore our ungodliness and our unrighteousness and he absorbed God's wrath. Jesus experienced our judgment day. Jesus cried out on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Can I tell you the answer? He did it for us. He did it for you and he did it for me. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we never have to be. During that, that season I mentioned to you earlier where, where the sin was just weighing on my shoulders, I remember being in church one night and uh, I was helping lead some music actually and, and uh, we, there was a kind of an open sharing time of, of scripture and I remember a man stood up and uh, he said, John three seventeen, for God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I remember feeling like I got punched in the gut. I remember just falling to my knees and I just wept uncontrollably. Because I felt like at that moment, God had just grabbed my head and looked deep into my soul and said, Philip. I felt like he was just speaking directly. I felt like he said, Philip, I sent my son into this world not to condemn you, but to save you. I felt like he was speaking it directly to me, and perhaps you might need to hear that today too. Rod, God did not send his son into the world to condemn you, but to save you. I, I can say that for every person here. Vicky, God did not send his son into the world to condemn you, but to save you. Every person. I can say that with confidence that every person, that same gift is available because all throughout the New Testament, he's going to say that he wishes that all would repent, that all would come to eternal life. That includes every person in this room. Therefore, I can say with confidence, friend, God did not send his son into this world to condemn you, but to save you. He holds out this gift of forgiveness, this gift of freedom freely. We have the tendency to say, oh, it sounds great. What do I do? Nothing. It's a gift. You receive it. Basically, you just say, yes. Yes, Jesus, I want to be forgiven. Yes, I, w- I want to receive you as my Lord and my King. Yes, I want a new relationship with you. We receive it. We don't work for it. It's an unearned gift. That's why it's called grace. That's what grace means. 
amazing grace, an unearned gift. In fact, we're going to do something in just, just a couple of minutes that, that represents this receiving of Christ in, in, a, in a really neat way. We're, we're going to take communion together as a church. Communion gives us a great picture of what it means to say yes to Jesus Christ. One of, one of my favorite pictures in the Bible of God's relationship between uh, him and his people is that of a bridegroom and his bride. Um, Isaiah says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. Your maker, your creator is your husband. In other words, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, we are now betrothed to him. I love that. In, in, in Revelation 19, John has this vision at the end of all time, and he writes, he says, uh, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's us, has made herself ready. I love the picture that's painted there. And let me explain, because in the Near East, uh, in Jesus' day, about 2,000 years ago, when a young man and his family were ready to arrange a marriage with a young woman, what they would do is they would, they would go to this family, and, and they, would, they would have written up a marriage contract or, or a marriage covenant, and they would present this to the young woman and her family. And, and with that, they would bring the bride price, okay, an appropriate bride price. And to see if the proposal was accepted, what they would do is the young man would take a cup and he would pour wine into the cup and then he'd present it to the young woman. And if the young woman drank, that means she was accepting the proposal and she's now betrothed uh, to, to the young man. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a cup of wine and he poured wine into it. Uh, he took the cup and he poured wine into it and he says, this is the new covenant this is the new covenant in my blood. He, he, he presents this marriage covenant, and he presents the bride price. What was the bride price? His blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. And then he says, take it and drink, and he offers it to the disciples. I believe that this is Jesus' way of extending uh, the, the marriage covenant to his disciples. And by the way, if, if, if the woman accepts uh, this proposal and she drinks the cup, do you, know, do you know what the young man does next? Basically, he says, okay, I go now to prepare a place for you, and I'll return when it's ready. And then he goes back to his father's house, and he prepares a room. He builds a room attached to the house. Uh, it's like a wedding chamber. From that point on, uh, the bride would then make herself ready for his return. She would do all she could to make herself beautiful. She, she would make all, she would do all she could to purify herself. From that point on, she would be set apart. It would be known that she was spoken for. She wouldn't be entertaining any suitors. And when the wedding chamber was ready, the bridegroom would come and he would claim his bride. Which, by the way, the father had to give the approval of when the wedding chamber was done. And so if anybody were to ask uh, you know, the bridegroom, hey, when's, when is it time? He'd say, only the father knows. So when the father gave, gave the go-ahead and said, okay, it's completed, it's time, the, the, the man would come back and he would claim his bride. And again, this could happen at any, any point. The, 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 the woman doesn't know. And so she, she's living with this sense of excitement and expectation and readiness, and readiness. She's got her stuff ready to go. You see all the parallels? John 14, this is what Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. 
Jesus has brought the new covenant. He's paid the bride price. He's offered the cup to any who would drink. And for all who have entered into this new covenant, we are in a sense of expectation and excitement and readiness. Our lives are being transformed with a new living hope. Those are the principles of the gospel. We are sinners separated from God, but Jesus came to save us and to reconcile us to God. And one day, he's coming back. One day, he's going to return and he's going to claim his bride. So lastly, what is the power of the gospel for today? And this can be very quick. What is the power of the gospel for today? First Peter, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Living hope is what he says. The gospel gives us a hope that changes everything. Do you know why it's so hard for us sometimes to face suffering? Do you know why it's so hard for us to sometimes face disability and and disease? Do you know why it's so hard for us sometimes to do the right thing, even when it's going to cost us money, or even when it's going to cost us our reputation, or maybe certain relationships, or our job, or our home, even our life? Do you know why it's so hard for us to face death? It's because so often we slip back into this mindset that this broken world is the only thing that we have, that this is all that there's going to be. We feel as if this money is the only treasure that we're ever going to have. We feel as if this body is the only body that we're ever going to have. We feel as if this life is the only life that we're ever going to have. But if you and I are united with Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, our future is so much more than that. I read this story about, um, I read this week uh, 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 about a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. Maybe some of you have heard of her. She's a Christian author and evangelist. when Joni was a, was a teenager, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay, and she misjudged the shallowness of the water, and she fractured her spine and has been a quadriplegic ever since, because she's paralyzed from the shoulders down. Um, you can imagine the, the struggle, the emotional roller coaster that she's been on uh, in, in her life as she's dealt with this disability. But it's been also been pretty amazing to see how this has helped to shape her faith and the faith of so many others uh, through her testimony. Um, but I read a story this week about her when she was uh, at church one particular Sunday, her home church. The pastor in the service um, asked everybody in the congregation to kneel for a certain portion of the worship. Um, Joni is in a wheelchair, and she was the only one unable to get down on her knees. Um, l- listen to what she said. She said, with everyone kneeling, I certainly stood out, and I couldn't stop the tears. Um, she, said, she went on to say, by the way, that this wasn't out of self-pity. She wasn't feeling bad for herself. She said, she said basically that, that uh, she was crying at the sight of hundreds of people on their knees before their God. She said it was just so beautiful, she started crying. She said it, 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 was, it was like a picture of what heaven was going to be like. This is what she said. She said, sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump up, dance, kick, do aerobics, and sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who was spinal cord injured like me? 
If, if you know, if you and I know that this is not the only world, the only body, the only life, the only treasures that we're ever going to have, that we will someday have a perfect life, an eternal life with our Creator, united, reconciled fully to our Creator, the one who gave His blood to win us back. Who cares what people do to us? Who cares what people say to us? Who cares what people take from us? We're liberated. We, we can be free from the ultimate anxieties in our life. We can be brave. We can take risks. We can face the hardest things in life, the most difficult things in life, with faith, hope, and joy, a peace that surpasses understanding is what the Bible says. Jesus said, the, the blind will receive sight, the lame will walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. That's the kingdom of God. That's our future. Complete healing, complete reconciliation. And to the extent that that future is real to us today, it will completely transform the way that we live today and tomorrow and the next day. Amen? That's liberation. That's what it means to be liberated. Let's pray.